it was personally exhausting just looking at my wife, looking at my young son and saying, I've failed as a dad and as a husband. I can't even take care of my kid. I haven't mastered whatever I need to master. I've kind of failed at life. Welcome to Career Relaunch, the podcast focused on helping you create a more fulfilling career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers and successfully make a major career pivot. We talk through their unique personal stories, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you take the brave steps needed to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to explain how he relaunched his career from being a pilot to launching his own Sky Taxi company. We'll discuss the trade-offs you may have to make when taking your career in a new direction and learning to live with less if it enables you to do more. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll talk about how I weathered the storm during one of my own career transitions. Today, I'm speaking with J.B. Atkins, who grew up in a large family with 16 siblings. He started flying at age 11 and eventually began his career at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University on a military scholarship. He decided to leave that behind to work in entertainment, music video production, and advertising before bouncing back into aviation to eventually start a string of companies in the field. Along the way, he encountered tremendous obstacles and pitfalls from being homeless for five months with his wife after they just had a baby to making the decision to live in an RV full-time to save and invest in his new business, Skyride, a flying taxi service startup that could change the way people move around cities. Now, of all the guests I've had the pleasure of speaking to on this show, I have to say that I really identified so closely with so many of the twists and turns JB went through, from leaving behind a prestigious school and degree, to working in a transitional job while figuring out your next career move, to having a deep desire to do something more with your life, all things I've experienced myself. I hope you enjoy hearing his honest views on the realities of what you often have to go through when you're trying to find your way. You can get all the show notes from this episode and check out the recent Washington Post article featuring JB and his company at careerrelaunch.net slash 48. JB spoke with me from Los Angeles, where he lives with his wife and two sons. Well, good morning, JB, and welcome to Career Relaunch. Thank you so much. Honored to be here, Joseph. Thanks so much for waking up, first of all, so early over there. I know it's like 5 a.m. where you are, so I appreciate you making time for this. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to just start off by talking a little bit more about what's happening with you right now. Can you just kick us off by telling me what you're up to and what you're focused on right now in your career and your life? Absolutely, man. Well, first off, I am in the middle of the mountains here in my fifth wheel RV camper. Where exactly are you at this moment? It's a, a little town right outside LA called Acton. It's a horse community, an equestrian community out here uh, in the mountains, man, kind of in the desert a little bit. Okay. So I am focused on uh, building a company called Skyride. Uh, it's a company, man, I've always been passionate about uh, in terms of the concept, which is sort of a flying taxi, air taxi deal. So that's something that you know I've been passionate about since I was literally in middle school, man. I mean, at this point, we've literally sacrificed everything to get this thing off the ground, pun intended. So that's where we're at. Thanks for making the call from the RV. We, I want to come back to talking about life living out of an RV because I know that's a big part of your story. And I also want to come back and talk with you about Skyride 
And I want to hear all about what that's been like. And you mentioned sacrifice just to understand what you've sacrificed and why you chose to sacrifice certain things so that you could get this off the ground. But I'd love to start by going back in time a little bit, JB, because you've got a really interesting story. You're actually the first pilot that we've had on this show. And uh, I want to start off by going back in time to when you were 11. I understand that's when you started flying. And uh, I was wondering if you could just tell us how you got into flying and then we can move forward from there. When I was seven years old, I believe, my dad took me to see a movie uh, and I still have the little DVD to this day. It was an IMAX. And I think this is when IMAX first kind of popped off. It's like early 90s. It was called The Magic of Flight. And it was basically a documentary about like the Blue Angels and, you know, the Wright brothers and all just all these iconic aviation figures and, and groups. And that movie really set me on this trajectory to want to learn how to fly in the first place. So when I was 11, I didn't know that you could be that young to start. And I think I bumped into a flight instructor somewhere and they saw that I had some aviation toy or something like that. I can't remember exactly how it happened, but as fate would have it, I ended up going to the local airport and literally dumping all the money I had saved up from cutting grass and took my very first flying lesson that day, which literally changed my life. And so from that point forward, uh, you know, I was still relatively young, so I couldn't fly by myself yet, but I was taking flying lessons like once every couple months when I could afford it until I was about 14 when I started getting really consistent with the flying lessons. And so when I was 14, that's when I started flying, you know, two and three times a week and really working hard towards getting the first level of your pilot's license, which is your private. So I ended up getting that in high school. And yeah, it was awesome, man. <laughs> I was doing a lot of fun stuff in high school, dude. <laughs> yeah. It's not the story of every high schooler out there. Right. <laughs> <So> <laughs> right. I was firmly planted on the ground during high school. So. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So I know then after that, JB, you went on to the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University on a full-ride military scholarship. Can you just tell me a little bit about that chapter of your career and what happened during your time? during aviation school? So uh, military, uh, what they call ROTC scholarships, are very competitive, especially if you're trying to become a pilot. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a large family too. So, you know, I was one of, gosh, now it's 16. I've had a couple brothers and sisters since I've left home <laughs> over the last uh, 10, 11 years. But, you know, in my family, you know, we didn't necessarily have the money to send people to school, like at all. And so we had to figure it out. And I knew that the only way for me to really I guess sort of continuing my aviation career was uh, the military and, you know, with airlines and all that, they love to see military experience anyway. And I figured, hey, if I can get my school paid for, I can continue to double down on my flight training and get them to pay for it and, you know, still have the prestige of being a military pilot. So I uh, earned a scholarship through the Marine Corps to Embry-Riddle. They paid for everything. Literally, I still have a picture, Joseph, of a $180,000 check. It was one of those big checks like you get like, you know, on those game oh, yeah. shows. Like, like you yeah. see on TV. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So they presented that at school. Oh, wow. Uh, it was so funny, man, that I look back. But yeah, I mean, they literally gave me a check and said, hey, you're guaranteed a pilot slot. We'll pay for everything. But what was interesting during that time is that I was actually torn. I actually wanted to go and pursue a, you know, at least try my hand at film. But you know, the family really didn't think that there was any real future in that necessarily. So off I go to, to the military, to Embry-Riddle uh, at least, and uh, I'm doing ROTC and all that. But the entire time, man, was just, 
honestly, it was grueling knowing that like I could be making films every day, I guess, at USC or something like that, which is kind of my backup. Can you just explain what was running through your head then during those early days in aviation school after you've gotten this huge scholarship and yet you're thinking that maybe this isn't the place for me? Can you just walk us through how you thought through that and what you ultimately decided to do? The ethos was very not me. And what I mean by that, it was, it was very macho, it was very warrior-esque. And I was able to keep up physically and all that. And I'm a pretty small in stature guy, but you know, I, I played sports in high school and stuff like that as well. You know, I wrestled and ran track. So the physical wasn't as exhausting. It was the culture. The culture is what turned me off because, you know, I've always been sort of a creative, big thinker, pie in the sky, talking about killing and, and all that stuff was just, you know, it really didn't resonate with me. And so every day getting yelled at and I don't know, it didn't really line up with my values. At, and even to this day, I mean, I look back and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually glad I'm not like over in Iraq dropping bombs on people. Not that, you know, I'm not disparaging the people who do that because I have a lot of buddies who are still friends to this day who are out there fighting for our freedom and I, and I salute those guys. But I think for me, I really couldn't see myself at that time, you know, being an 18 or 19 year old kid. With them, when you have a guaranteed pilot slot, when you graduate, you owe 12 years. I would have had to wait until I was 34 to even consider getting out. So that's a big chunk of my life to give up at 18 or 19. That decision-making process overwhelmed me at the time. Can you remember the day when you decided to leave aviation school behind? I remember, I think I was at PT. It was like this. It was like 530, something like that, like Odark 30, they call it. And I'm at PT because we PT'd every day, which is physical training. So we had to show up and you've got to dress a certain way at school. It's crazy. So I remember being at PT and I remember not feeling well. I think we had just come off of doing like dips or something like that. I remember like it was yesterday, man. We had like like the pull-up bars and like the dip little thing. And, and I'm sitting there and I get off the dip thing. And I just remember feeling super lightheaded. And like my ears start ringing really bad and my vision starts closing in. And I think I'm having like, an epileptic episode or something like that. And so I go over to my captain, kind of not standing up all the way. And I'm like, hey, I think I'm having like an epileptic. I don't know. And I've never had epilepsy. I don't know what caused me to say that. Saying that actually ruined my chances of continuing uh, on this trek to become a pilot. So just saying that, they, they made a file for me and were like, hey, you're going to see a neurologist. No questions asked. And this is probably going to ruin your opportunity to become a pilot or ever be considered to fly. And I was like, well, I'm certainly not gonna be infantry for the next however long. And they gave me a choice. At the end of the day, my test came back okay, but they're like, hey, you know what? We're gonna give you an opportunity to either keep your scholarship and continue, or you can just go and you won't owe us anything. So, you know, in that critical moment, man, I was like, you know what? Yeah, I think I'm gonna transition into something else. I'm gonna give this up. Wow. And how did you then move forward from there? Like, what did you do the next day, the next week to move on and start something new? You know, at this point, I didn't really know what to do. You know, I'm thinking my parents are, you know, I'm thinking they're going to be disappointed in my family. I've let everybody down because they've known I've, you know, always been passionate about aviation. This has sort of always been my dream, so to speak. But in my heart of hearts, I knew like, man, I, I, I wanted to do other things. I just felt like this was the only way to achieve what I wanted to achieve in aviation, which honestly has always been on the on, more on the business side. 
So I tried to join the Army's program, and I stayed with that for about a semester. But <laughs> I actually ended up getting a D in a math class okay. that disqualified me from getting the scholarship for the Army. Okay. So something did not want me to go the military track, man. Uh-huh. No matter what I did, I wasn't able to continue along that path. So that wasn't working out. The stars were not aligning for you there. What did you decide to do next? So I actually ended up getting a job at the local shoe store just so I could figure things out. Because I was like, okay, at this point, I'm, you know, I'm going to end up owing. You know, I've got to take out a small loan to cover you know, the last little bit of my semester. But at that point, Joseph, I already had my sight set on California. Man, I wanted to try my hand at the production thing. I wanted to make movies. I wanted to do something creative. And so I started planning my transition that following summer to come out to LA and just dive right in, man. Try to make it in the movie business, try to make it big, right? Before we talk about the music video chapter of your career, can you just explain what it was like for you to go from having a full ride scholarship at an aviation school to then working in a shoe store? And not that there's anything wrong with working in a shoe store. I've worked in retail myself, but can you just explain what it was like to go from learning how to fly to selling shoes? Was that something that was difficult to stomach for you? To be honest with you, it, it might have been the opposite, Joseph. And I think that's because with the, the sort of the rigidity of, you know, the Marine Corps, I felt like I wasn't really able to be myself, you know, working that retail job and being around people who were not subjected to that rigidity, actually freed me in a sense. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I, I've always been a people person and interacting with people and even selling them shoes and fitting them and trying to, like I excelled at that, you know, the sales part of it. And at the end of the day, I think what motivated me is I knew that I was on my way out to California anyway. So I looked at it as a stepping stone in a sense. And I was still relatively young, dude. I was like 19 at this time. So I was like, you know, this is, you know, I was just now embarking out on, on my journey and just completely free world at my fingertips, working this retail job, meeting all sorts of interesting people, you know, working with an amazing team there. I still keep in touch with some of those guys to this day, believe it or not. That's really cool. That, well, we have something in common because I, we didn't talk about this before, but I actually worked at a Banana Republic for a few months and I was working in the women's shoe department, oh. helping women try on different shoes there. And I loved it. Like it was one of the most fun jobs I've had. It was exactly what you mentioned, JB. You get to interact with a lot of different people. You're catching people when they're pretty happy because they're shopping for something new. And I I was like, you. I also found it to be kind of freeing in some ways when I stepped back and thought about it. So that's, that's really interesting. So let's talk about what happened to you when you went to Southern California. Then you got involved in the music video business, I understand, right? Yeah, man. It, you know, it took me a couple months to really get planted as far as that's concerned, but I knew that's what I wanted to focus on. I wanted to come out. I kind of had it all trekked out, right? I, I was like, a lot of really good movie directors start off as music video directors. And I'd kind of, you know, I've been a musician growing up, you know, played in church and stuff like that. It's a whole nother thing. But I was like, you know, I love music and I could definitely see myself doing that. So I would just practice writing concepts. I would just listen to music and just sit in, you know, in the music video business, they have what are called treatments. And those are sort of like, almost like in startups and, and in business where you have like slide decks or like pitch decks. A treatment is essentially that for music videos. So I'd learned how to write them, you know, reached out to directors I admired. Most of them didn't ever get back to me, but that's a whole nother thing. But just really, man, dived in head first and, and started doing extra work in LA to supplement my income. Because at that 
time, I, you know, I didn't really have anything lined up in terms of jobs. Like showing up as an extra in, in like ads or other music yeah. videos or, yeah. Yeah, okay. totally. Yeah. So I started doing that and, uh, with extra work, there's a lot of downtime cause they're only using you maybe an hour out of, you know, an eight or 12 hour day. So I'd go to the library and get every book I could on film and composition. And this is like still like pre internet explosion, like before everything was on Google and every, you know, you could sort of just do this, this is like the Blackberry 1.0 era. So, uh-huh. you know, not everything was as readily available as it is now. Right. And so the library man was like my solace, like that was where I really was able to kind of hone just through reading and, you know, via proxy, like kind of hone my skills, man. And then a couple months, you know, after experimenting and figuring that out, I shot my first video. It was like a, a group of Christian rappers. And, you know, I knew they wouldn't take themselves too serious. No disrespect. And I was like, hey, I'll shoot your video for free. And so I borrowed a camera from a guy that I met on a photo shoot. I think I paid him like 60 bucks or something like that. I had no clue what I was doing, no clue how to use it. But uh, I think I was looking at some YouTube videos to try to get acclimated and uh, ended up just diving head in, man, and, uh, or head first rather, and shot my first, shot my first video. How did you then go from shooting music videos to launch an aerial tour company? Can you just walk us through that transition? Because I know that that also involved some, what I'm going to call kind of tough times just trying to make it. I just had this longing to get back into aviation, namely because the music video business is so brutal. And then on top of that, I mean, I was doing a lot of content that I wasn't really, I wasn't really proud of, man. You know, you're doing a lot of exploiting and there's a lot of, you know, the models and it's just, and you know, I was recently married at that time. And it, you know, honestly, man, it just, it wasn't the most positive environment. And so that coupled with obviously always being, you know, always having that passion for aviation. I was like, you know, maybe, maybe I should look into, into something else before this gets out of hand. And so that's when my wife and I, it was around the time we were expecting our first child, my, my first son, we started an aerial tour company <laughs> or we, we tried. <laughs> uh-huh. Just, it was an interesting time. <laughs> yeah. Well, we talked before you were explaining that uh, you went through a bit of a transitional period in terms of your living situation. Can you just explain what happened and where you were spending your nights? So the music video business is kind of, I'm kind of letting it go, right? It's kind of going downhill. So at that time, I'm like, hey, let's start an aerial tour company. Like this will be an easy, I don't want to say easy, but let's put like a tech spin on it. We'll do like an app when you're in the air, it'll, the app will show you like where you are and it'll talk to you. So we don't have to have like a, somebody, you know, the pilot doesn't have to be distracted, all this other stuff, right? We bought an airplane, Joseph, first mistake. Should have never done that. So we bought an airplane, literally just drop cash to buy this old airplane that we thought would be an amazing marketing tool. We actually went down to Venice beach here in LA and asked the police department if we could bring the airplane to Venice Beach. Because we're like, hey, we think this would be an amazing marketing tool. Can you let us put this on the boardwalk so that people will be like enamored by seeing a freaking airplane and then they'll sign up for a tour? And they're like, sure, we've never seen that before. Come down. Okay. So we took the wings off the airplane, trailered it down, and set this airplane up on Venice Beach, which is, I mean, we got quite a bit of press doing that, actually. It was was hilarious. People were just like, these guys brought an airplane to Venice Beach? That's a first. (laughs) We booked zero tours, bro. Zero. So over the next month, you know, we had this hangar rent we had to pay for. We had 
the airplane, obviously, it needs maintenance. We had stuff that needed to be done to that. We ended up folding in like two months. And that was like devastating because here I am at this point, my wife is literally about to go into labor. Like we have three weeks left until my son is born. And I have this airplane that has all these issues and I can't sell it. And, I, you know, I have hangar rent, super expensive here, all this overhead. And I have no idea how I'm going to take care of it. And so literally end up getting evicted from our apartment and going to live with a friend for five months. And then my son at this point, I mean, he, you know, he literally spent his infancy from house to house. We, you know, we lived with uh, some friends for five months and we went to live with some lady we met at a church for a month or so. I mean, it was every time I talk about it, man, I just, I, I kind of get emotional because it, it was a, it was a tough time, man. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to say it. What was the toughest thing about it? It was personally exhausting just looking at my wife, looking at my, my young son and saying, I failed as a dad and as a husband. I can't even take care of my kid. I can't take care of my family. I haven't mastered whatever I need to master. I've kind of failed at life. And I remember literally when, we're, when we were moving the stuff out of our house, when the sheriffs were on their way to make sure that we had cleaned everything out, when we were evicted, I remember looking through hotels like the, you know, those motels that like let you stay by the week. It's like 200 bucks a week. And I literally remember like, man, I've got like a few hundred dollars left to my name. I just need to find one of these hotels. It's not in the jankiest area. So we'll be somewhat safe. And I just remember feeling like, my God, dude, I, I couldn't come to grips with the fact that I was homeless, like literally with a baby, with an infant. I mean, that was devastating, man, on a personal level. How did your wife handle that situation? Because I guess she's a new mother. You guys don't have a home. How was she reacting to this whole situation that you were in at the time? I'm so fortunate, man. I always, I always tell people my, my wife believes in me more than, more than I believe in me. And I don't think this has anything to do with it per se, but my wife's actually older than me. We're eight years apart. So my wife had had her own career and she really took a step back to help support what I was doing. And so I think my wife saw the potential. And, you know, I was young. I think when that happened, I was like maybe 24, 25. She surprisingly was very calm throughout the entire ordeal and just had the faith to say, you know what? I know this looks jacked up. And yes, I'm going through it emotionally too, but I'm going to support you. So I'm going to play the strong person in this thing. And and we're going to get through this. And that's exactly what she did. And not one night from sleeping on a friend's couch, literally on her back with a baby on her chest, every single day did she complain. Not one night. Yeah, you can't really ask for more than that, especially when you're trying to figure things out and you're already feeling pretty bad about things. So that just sounds incredible that she was such a great support during that time. And so understanding about the situation, how did you get yourself out of that situation? Can you just explain what transition you went through? And then I want to start talking a little bit more about Skyride. I ended up just taking a step back and going to find, you know, a job. And I essentially just leveraged my portfolio to get a gig at the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army had like an in-house agency that they had just launched and they wanted young creatives to come and kind of help spearhead this thing. You know, and the Salvation Army is a Christian organization, but I, you know, I kind of sent them my music video reel with all these like <laughs> hardcore rap videos and girls and twerking and all that. And 
<laughs> I was like, look, I was just transparent with them. They, they liked the work just because of the quality of, you know, what we had done. And I was like, look, that was kind of a past sort of phase. You know, I'm totally focused on doing something new and positive now. And I got the gig. And mind you, when you get an eviction, it's not easy to find a place to live. So we had to wait a little bit longer to get into a place to get somebody to trust us. I got the job with Salvation Army, man. And that was sort of what I was able to kind of double down on the skills that I had learned in music videos and in production to help own what we were doing there. And it was, it was an amazing experience. I'm not an office guy, but I certainly learned what, what I needed to learn to transition into the next phase and to sort of do what I'm doing now. So I'm very grateful for that time. Before we talk about Skyride, just one more question about your transition. What was it like to be able to move back into your own place? Oh, dude, I don't think I can describe the feeling, Joseph. I mean, just the, the pride, man, the oh, having a bed. I mean, at the first three months, we didn't even, I mean, we just had an air mattress and we were happy to have that just because we had slept on couches for so long. So it was a relief. I think that's the only word I can use to describe being in our own place, man, at that point was relief. Let's talk about the current chapter you're in right now, which is working on Skyride. And I want to start by talking about this lifestyle choice that you made and why you decided to live in an RV. Can you just explain what living in an RV has opened up for your life and for your career and what you've been able to do because of this? I left the Salvation Army about maybe two and a half years ago. And I basically was like, hey, I want to, you know, I want to focus on this aviation project that I'd had in mind when we got evicted. So the aerial tour company was sort of a precursor to what is now Skyride. But I had this idea back then to sort of do something like this. But that whole, you know, eviction and having to go work and all that kind of derailed things a little bit. And so I, you know, had left Salvation Army to focus on this. You know, I started like a consultancy. So Salvation Army was my first client. They actually hired me back as a consultant, which is awesome. It gave me the flexibility and I still had an income. But a market like LA is just so expensive. You know, the overhead to live is just is sky high, literally. And so my wife and I had been talking about an alternative lifestyle so we could save every penny and put it into just getting started with, with Skyride. We actually tried a boat first. So it was like three things. We were like, we're either going to move to like a cheap part of Europe for a while. We're going to move to like, Spain or something like that uh-huh. and try to like arbitrage our money that way. Or we're going <laughs> to, I was like, no, let's just stay here and get a boat. So we tried it. We rented a boat on Airbnb and we stayed and we tried that, but the rocking was bothering my wife. Uh-huh. And, and then we found out, we literally found out we were pregnant with our second kid, like during staying on the boat. So I was like, well, that's not going to work out. Uh, and then, you know, having two kids on the boat is going to be, it's just going to be counterproductive. Uh-huh. Uh, so <laughs> So then we looked into RVs and I'd always been under the impression that RVs were super expensive to sort of own and operate. Cause I'm thinking, oh, RV parks are very, you know, they're really expensive and all that. But we've ended up finding an RV, man. And it was a dream. Like, it, you know, it is an older RV, but it had been owned by one couple. So we bought the RV from them and the next week literally moved into it. A friend let us basically rent his driveway out at a property that he, he wasn't living at. And we did that for like two months until we got kicked out by the HOA. <laughs> so we got forced to figure out where to park the RV and ended up finding a membership RV park, which has been 
I mean, we literally are paying, you know, a couple hundred bucks in, in rent a month for everything that, you know, water, electricity and the site. So it's amazing. So it, I say all that to say we're able to save almost all of our income and put that into bootstrapping the business. I mean, it's been an amazing, amazing experience so far. And I wish I would have done this years ago, honestly. Is there something that you've learned about yourself having lived in an RV for a while now? I've learned that, you know, home is where the heart is. And I would say heart equals family. And, you know, now it's my wife and myself and, and my, my two young boys. And we've never been happier, honestly. We've learned to live with less. We don't have any storage. You know, we own everything we have, no debt. And it just frees us up to, to the point where if we lost everything today, in terms of, you know, finances, we, we'd be just fine. I think we've just learned to sort of cultivate an air of peace and serenity in our home. And, you know, this is kind of our, our refuge, man. We love being at the RV. And it, for my sons, I mean, that, I think this is just going to be an amazing experience for them and have a major impression on their upbringing and how they approach life. It's awesome. It must be a lot of fun for them, definitely. Oh, dude, they, they love it. <laughs> they love yeah, it. Yeah, I'll bet. Run around. I can imagine, oh, yeah. yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about Skyride? What's it about and where do things stand right now with the business? You know, it's a service that lets people book short hops on small planes between airports and major cities. So it's an alternative to traffic. We're actually getting a lot of favorable press and stuff right now. But the journey has been an arduous one, to say the least. It has been a long journey. The aviation business is not easy by any stretch. And we're dealing with a lot of different regulatory bodies who are you know, very, very, very difficult to sort of deal with, I guess. But you literally in LA can book a flight through Skyride and, and we'll stick you in a tiny airplane and, and take you from you know, Van Nuys here in LA to Santa Monica, which typically is an hour and a half commute. But for us, we just did it the other day. It was six minutes and 49 seconds. So we're really trying to sell people their time back. And the goal with that, honestly, man, is to build the best flying taxi company there is with the latest and greatest technology. So it's a lot of fun, man. I'm having a ball. Having been through all of these different changes from Starting off in aviation school, then moving into entertainment and advertising. Now that you're working on Skyride, how does this experience compare to some of those other experiences that you moved away from? You know, this one, man, I'm in it for the right reasons. I think even with, uh, with the music videos and advertising, I was always kind of focused on the money and trying to be something I wasn't because that's kind of the culture, right? The industry is kind of, you know, keeping up with the Joneses and having the fanciest car and wearing the the latest outfits and swag and you kind of have to play the part, right? And so I wasn't really being myself, which is so funny because with the Marines, I thought, hey, if I can go and do this, I can just be myself. And when in essence, I was actually sort of being affected by the people around me who weren't always the best influence. The decadence and the excess and all that, I mean, that's what music videos and entertainment is all about. So I think with Skyride, it's really just me. This is the 11-year-old me, right? And a 28-year-old body having the imagination to dump all my change on the, on the, I remember it like it was yesterday, you know, on the flight school counter and, and take my first flying lesson and really dream and believe that I could do it, that I could be a pilot at, by the time I was 16, right? That same energy and imagination has really penetrated everything I've done with Skyride right now. And, and I'm totally happy and I'm not doing it for the money. My wife and I talk about it all the time. If we need to live in our RV for the rest of our lives, then we're good with that. 
Because we have everything we need, everything and then some. You know what I mean? I think it's just a different experience altogether. It's just, it's authentic. It's authentic. Well, for me personally, it's what I've always wanted to do. I'm blessed, man. That's fantastic to hear, JP. I got one more question for you and then I'm going to let you go. What's something you wished that you had known about career change that you now know having been through all of these different transitions? Here's what I know. The same thing that held you down in terms of your skill set and your personality and your the nucleus that that makes you you that makes you successful in whatever it is that you're doing is the same thing that will carry you through your your transition honestly. Um, I think it's just a matter of finding what your strengths are and doubling down in the next thing. I mean, it's the work might be a little bit different, but at the end of the day, I think uh, your skill sets and, and the things that uh, have empowered you through the other stuff you've done and whether that was a previous career or what have you, or a you know, series of other things, it's really the same set of skills that are going to empower you and carry you through this next phase. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's really important to... Yeah, remind yourself that the things that are kind of nagging you right now or the things that you feel you should be doing instead of what you are doing are actually the things you should latch on to as you try to figure out what you want to do next in your career and that you shouldn't apologize for it, that you should actually embrace it and be oh, proud yes. of it and kind of roll with it. Dude, that's, that's 100%, man. <laughs> that's, wow. I love that. Speaking of doing work that you really enjoy and, and finally getting around to doing something that's more in line with, as you put it, your nucleus. If people want to learn more about how things are going for you, or if they want to learn more about Skyride, where can they go? They can go to goskyride.com and we spell it S-K-Y-R-Y-D-E. Uh, it's just a web app right now. We've just, I mean, we literally just recently launched in, uh, in May here. And so uh, we're still working on the software and stuff like that. But if anybody's in LA and needs a flight, go to Skyride and book one, or you can reach out via, there's a support email there, and I'll probably be one of the ones to answer that, and we'll try to get you on a flight. <laughs> okay. Just let you try it. Man, so, yeah. Sounds great, JB. So I hope that people will check that out. We'll definitely include the website in the show notes. And just wanted to thank you again for telling us more about your very interesting career journey, how you navigated the transitions, especially during those times when things got pretty tough. And also some unique perspectives about the importance of doing work that allows you to be yourself and that makes the most of who you are. So I think that's a good note to leave on. So I just wanted to wish you the best of luck with Skyride and also the best of luck with fatherhood. Oh, dude, thank you so much, Joseph. I'm so honored to be on, man. And like I said, dude, I'm, I'm so grateful for you. Seriously, it's been amazing. So I hope you enjoyed hearing JB's thoughts on how to take solace in your strengths, how to deal with setbacks, and making the trade-offs necessary to enable your next career move. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to share my own story of the day I decided to leave medical school and make a change. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I just wanted to thank A2 Hosting for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. A2 is the web host provider I use and trust for my own websites. They even offer 100% carbon neutral green hosting. For an easy, fast, and affordable way to get your personal website online today, visit careerrelaunch.net slash A2 to get 50% off your web hosting plan.
This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's Mental Fuel, I want to piggyback off of the personal story JB shared when he decided to give up his ROTC scholarship and his spot in Aeronautical University to pursue other things. And he was talking about that day he realized he wanted to leave, so I thought I'd share my own story of what happened the day I decided to leave medical school. Revealing a few things about that day I've never actually shared before publicly. And maybe by hearing our stories, it can give you another example of how these things go down as a way of cluing you into whether or not you're experiencing some similar feelings in your own career. So if you're a longtime listener to this show, You probably already know that one of my major career pivots was leaving the Georgetown School of Medicine to pursue a career in business instead. But what I haven't shared is what exactly happened during the exact moment, all the way back in August 2002, when I realized I was in the wrong place, a moment that I still remember very vividly. Now, just to set the scene, I had just moved to Washington, D.C. a few weeks before starting medical school at Georgetown. And between graduating from college in 2000 and starting medical school in 2002, I'd actually spent some time in both Honolulu and San Diego doing a whole variety of jobs just to kind of get it out of my system before starting medical school. And one of those jobs, as you heard me mention to JB, was working part-time at a Banana Republic retail store in the Ala Moana shopping mall in Honolulu, Hawaii, which was a way of me earning a little bit of extra cash while I was working as a news anchor for Hawaii Public Radio. And working in radio was something I really loved doing and probably planted the seed to me eventually starting this podcast many years later. So when I started at Georgetown, although my primary focus was to, of course, focus on my medical studies so I could become a doctor one day, I hadn't completely let go of my interest I developed in audio journalism. So one of the ideas I'd had when I started medical school was to create an audio documentary of our journey as medical students during our four years there. I mentioned it to a few of my classmates, and everyone I talked to thought it would be a cool audio record of our time together in medical school. So I started interviewing classmates and also captured some audio from our classes. I always asked permission and got written consent from people before I recorded anything, so this way I could make sure I was only capturing audio people agreed to have captured. And I was really excited to do this. I remember the feeling of being very much in my element, combining my interest in journalism with my interest in medicine. The only problem was it didn't exactly land well with everyone, especially the administrative staff of the medical school. And I'll never forget one day, about two weeks into medical school, I was sitting in embryology class, furiously taking notes, and I'd already begun feeling a bit overwhelmed with all the subject matter in medical school, wondering if I was really interested in spending the rest of my life in medicine, wondering if I was truly interested in everything that was happening in Gross Anatomy Lab, and wondering whether I was really interested in all the rote memorization of body parts and physiological pathways that were required to be a successful medical school student and doctor. And as I was there taking notes, I suddenly felt a tap on my shoulder, and I turned around and saw someone from the admissions office staring rather angrily at me and asking me to exit the classroom. And she literally pulled me out 
by the arm into the hallway and confronted me about why I was recording interviews with other students in my class. And I tried to explain to her that a lot of people in the class knew I'd been a news anchor and a lot of them were really excited about me creating this audio documentary for us to have when we graduated in four years. It all honestly seemed really harmless to me. But I will never forget how she just stood there and basically scolded me for doing this and told me that I had to stop. There was a lot of finger pointing in my face that I will never forget. And I'll also never forget how angry she looked. She made it seem like I'd committed some sort of a crime or something at that moment. And I'd never really gotten into any sort of trouble before, definitely not in an academic environment. So the whole thing was kind of jarring for me. And I remember going back into the classroom and similar to what JB mentioned about feeling really dizzy that day during physical training, I kind of had this moment where the world started to swirl around me and I felt my heart was beating really fast and I completely stopped hearing anything that the professor was saying at the front of the room because I decided in that moment that I was in the wrong place and that I was going to leave. So I stopped taking notes. I put my pen down. I closed my notebook. And that was the exact moment that I decided to resign from medical school. And I guess looking back on it, I can definitely understand the administration's concern about a random student capturing audio during his medical school studies. And maybe there was some sort of a privacy concern or they may have been worried that I might secretly record conversations, which I wasn't going to do. But the point is that I'd gotten what I felt was a very clear sign that there was absolutely no room in this particular environment for the type of activity I actually felt was 100% in line with my interests and passions at the time. I also realized in that moment that I liked creating something new that hadn't been done before. I liked the fact that I would be more than just a medical student studying medicine. But in that environment, it just was not welcome. There wasn't room for it and it wasn't acceptable. I ultimately decided to leave medical school because I needed to move my career in a direction where I wouldn't have to lock away a part of myself in order to fit in and to be valued. So I'm sharing this story with you because I think that sometimes you may find yourself feeling at odds with your professional environment. And I'm not talking about the culture being a little bit off from what you want. I'm talking about the environment being completely incompatible with the person you are and the person you most enjoy being. So if you feel like you have to be someone else all the time just to fit in, or if you feel like there just isn't room for you to pursue the interests that really excite you, it may be worth reconsidering whether you're indeed in the right place long-term. I have been the happiest in my career when I feel like the culture, people, and attitudes of those people are compatible with the person I most enjoy being. So I hope you'll take stock of whether or not you feel like there's truly room for all the aspects of who you are in the place where you spend most of your working hours. This takes me to a quote from the author Betty Bender, When people go to work, they shouldn't have to leave their hearts at home. 
So my challenge to you is to think about your own work environment for a moment and consider whether there's a way for you to do more of the work you enjoy doing. Do you feel like there's room in that environment to pursue all your different interests or to showcase all your different skills you're most proud of? If not, I'm not saying you have to leave. You might be able to tweak your projects or get involved with something within your organization that allows you to exercise more of your true interests. But if not, it may be worth considering ways to look elsewhere to scratch whatever itch you're feeling. Before we go today, one of the things I'm going to try to do on this podcast is to support some of our former guests who have been on the show and who have relaunched their careers. And if you've subscribed to this podcast for a while, you might remember Rena Aini, the former professional tennis player turned investment banker and managing director of Textile International. We featured last December in episode 32, who talked about the importance of defining your walkaway point and her decision to walk away from her career in tennis. I didn't need to prove anything anymore to anyone else or myself for that matter. And I just didn't want to do it anymore. So I got up from the table. I called my coach, told him I wasn't playing anymore. And I put my rackets away. And that was it. So that episode with Rena was all about moving on. And it turns out that Rena herself has now decided to move on to start another exciting new venture. Combining all her career experiences in professional sport, banking, and management she talked about on the show, she's launching her own outerwear brand called Cult Thread, which is a line of unique one-off coats designed to empower women to feel unique and exceptional. What's really cool is that the products are handmade with recycled materials, the best British wax fabrics, which is pretty handy in the rainy London weather, and free from animal products, so completely cruelty-free. Now, Rena has been kind enough to extend a special invitation to Career Relaunch listeners to attend her launch party in Notting Hill, London, on the evening of October 23rd. I'm going to be there myself, and if you're interested in coming to the Cult Thread launch party, meeting Rena, and checking out some of her coats, send me an email at joseph at careerrelaunch.net before October 19th. Be sure to tell me a little bit about who you are and why you'd like to attend. This is an invitation-only event, and space is limited, so we're opening this up only to the first five listeners who get in touch with me. So if you want to come to Rena's launch party on October 23rd, again, drop me an email today at joseph at careerrelaunch.net, and if you're one of the first five people, we'll get you on the guest list and send you all the event details. You can also follow Cult Thread on Instagram, and Cult Thread is spelled C-U-L-T-H-R-E-A-D. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love for you to leave me a positive review on Apple Podcasts, which helps this show reach more people who can benefit from the stories at careerrelaunch.net slash 48, where you can also find a summary of all the key ideas we discussed today and learn more about JB. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 48. In our next episode, I'll be featuring a former chief revenue officer who went on to become an author and professional speaker. We're going to talk about the process of writing a book and what she learned about confidence from all her own career pivots. Thanks so much for being part of the Career Relaunch community and a special thanks again to J.B. Adkins for sharing his story with us today. This episode was mixed by Richard Pennington, Electrocardiogram wrote and performed our original theme song, I'm Joseph Liu, and I'll see you next time.